This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 24th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, contributing correspondent Dennis Normile talks about how international radiation safety regulations actually come out of a long-term study of people exposed to the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki 75 years ago. Next, researcher Winnie Lau talks about a global approach to putting a stop to plastic pollution. I know we talk about where plastic shows up, how it ends up there, but now we're going to figure out how to stop it. Her team's work shows that if the right steps are taken, plastic pollution could go down by 40% from today's level by 2040. Now we have contributing correspondent Dennis Normile. He wrote this week on how 75 years later, the survivors of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki have transformed the understanding of the effects of radiation exposure on health. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Sarah. We're talking about a study now run by RERF, which is the Radiation Effects Research Foundation. This is a very long-term study, as I mentioned, almost 75 years, and it's included many, many survivors, over 100,000. How exactly did this study get started all those years ago? President Harry Truman authorized the launch of the study. It was in 1947. They were pretty much um, had a full team on the ground in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. By 1949 and 1950, the U.S. Navy realized that there would be a benefit to studying the acute impact and the long-term impact of what happens to humans when they are subjected to the detonation of an atomic bomb. The survivors' involvement in such a long-term study has yielded an amazing array of results, important results for health, for anyone who's exposed to radiation in work or in an accident. What are some of the key findings from this work? It is not just one study. They actually have a collection of different studies that they have carried out. The most notable one is this enormous lifespan study where they have, as you mentioned, 120,000 people who were enrolled at the outset. If you put together the combination of the number of participants and the length of the study, there's probably nothing else like it. The RERF and its predecessor, the ABCC, simply gathered the data 
on how radiation has long-term effects on the health of those who are exposed to the radiation. The RERF, previously the ABCC, gathers that data, makes epidemiological connections between the amount of radiation someone gets and their risk of developing cancer later in life. Other organizations take that data and data from other studies as well, and they turn those into recommendations for the amount of exposure that people should be allowed to get if they are patients for medical imaging, or if they are the technicians, or if they are nuclear power plant workers. This gives away how old I am. But <laughs> when I went to the dentist when I was a child, you would sit in the dental chair and the dentist would wheel out this machine, take x-rays of your teeth, and those x-rays would go bouncing all over the room. These days, for a dental x-ray, they put you in a special room, which is shielded. The technician is wearing a badge to track how much radiation he or she is exposed to. You're also wearing a lead vest to protect your organs from stray x-rays. All of those recommendations, the shielding around the x-ray rooms, the dosimetry badges the technicians wear, and the lead vest that patients wear, they all grew out of the basic data that was produced by these long-term studies by RERF in cooperation with the survivors. We talked about how this research got started very soon after the bombings. The U.S. government and the Japanese government both did research with survivors, but with different purposes. How are they different? How are their intentions with the studies different? The ABCC was very much an American-led study. When the ABCC got started, Japan was still under America's occupation, and the Japanese scientists had difficulty publishing their observations. The amount of information that was released to the Japanese public was very much controlled by the occupation authorities. So there were real restrictions on what the Japanese scientists could do. But that initial collection of data by the U.S. groups was over within a few months. A bit later, there was a decision to set up a long-term study of the effects of radiation. And at that point, the objectives of the Japanese scientists and the American scientists were pretty much aligned. You mentioned in the story that the survivors weren't treated by the U.S. scientists when they were involved in the study initially? That's right. And basically, for political reasons, the decision was made that the ABCC would not offer any treatment to the people who were being examined by the ABCC physicians. The concern was that if the ABCC, which at that time was very much American-funded, American-led, if they offered treatment, it might be taken as an admission of culpability in their condition. It caused misunderstandings and friction between the survivors, many of whom believed that they would get some help for dealing with their illnesses, with their injuries. Yeah. Why would a survivor become involved in this study if they weren't going to get treatment even decades later, if that was the history of the study? Initially, there was a hope that they would get some sort of medical benefit from participating in the study. They didn't get zero. In particular, children that were born to survivors got medical checkups that they would not have received had they not been part of the study. Later, as one of the survivors told me, he has continued to cooperate with the study because he hopes that it will help the world recognize how devastating the effects are of an attack using atomic weapons. And so that is what motivates him to continue to cooperate. 
it's not clear whether there are health effects for the offspring of survivors, but the survivors' children are obviously concerned about their health. Can you talk about about this tension? What the scientists say is that their studies so far have not identified any effects. The question is, are there no effects? Or are the statistical data simply not detailed enough to spot effects? The friction that arises is that some of the children of the survivors believe that they are facing health issues that are not faced by people whose parents were not subjected to the atomic bomb radiation. So the children want recognition as survivors, as second-generation survivors. And they now have two court actions going forward to try to force the the government to recognize that the children of survivors should be recognized as survivors as well, and that they should also be entitled to medical support, just as their parents are. Working with such a large group, this enormous study population, has made it possible to ask questions about subtle differences, even if the children of survivors' questions are not clear at this point. You talk about how at the time of the bombing, if a person was standing or sitting inside a building, outside a building, those were all taken into account. How were those details available? How did that get pulled into the study? A lot of legwork is is, is the basic answer. The scientists recognize that determining the dose that every survivor received at the time of the blasts would be very important to making an accurate connection between the dose they received and what kind of health effects they faced later on. So the scientists and the staff of the ABCC put in an enormous amount of time and effort to try to come up with accurate determinations of what dose of radiation each person in their study likely received. Mm -hmm. And so this involved detailed interviews with 28,000 survivors. They took the data from the 28,000 individuals that were interviewed in detail, and they sort of extrapolated that to individuals who were further away and in different situations. A part of this was understanding the shielding. So if you were out in the open, you would have gotten a larger dose. If you were in a building, the materials of that building would have shielded you from some portion of that radiation. So they constructed full-scale, full-size, Japanese-style wooden buildings in the Nevada desert and subjected them to atomic bomb tests. Buildings were instrumented so that they could tell how much radiation would have hit the outside of the building and how much radiation would have penetrated to the interior of the building. And they put that together with other observations of how much radiation would penetrate concrete buildings how much might have been blocked by the terrain. And that was all part of determining the dose for each individual in these studies. We talked about how this type of research has underpinned radiation safety, but the results from the study are not limited to that. Even in the past few years, results from this have come out. Can you talk about some of the more recent findings? One thing that came out just in the last two years is that they have spotted a link between the age of exposure among women and whether they suffered breast or uterine cancer in later years. And they found that young women who were exposed to the blasts at the time they had their first menstrual cycle were more likely to suffer from cancer later in life than women who were exposed before puberty and women exposed after puberty. 
There aren't, to be blunt, many survivors left at this point, but the study keeps going. As you mentioned, there's recent results. There are many results expected in the future, too, based on biological samples taken from the survivors. What kind of questions are researchers looking to answer with that part of the study? As our listeners probably know, it has become very economical to sequence the DNA collected from biological samples. So far, the RARF has not done any sequencing of their samples. For one thing, they collected these samples under older notions of informed consent that did not extend to genetic sequencing. So they're now in the very complex process of discussing this issue with the remaining survivors, with ethicists and lawyers, and they hope to come up with a solution to this so they can start sequencing these samples. This may allow them to identify certain mutations among those who develop cancer, among those who were directly exposed to the bomb's radiation. The researchers will look for mutations that might indicate exactly what the biological process is. What is it about radiation that results in cancer? And by comparing DNA samples from the survivors and their children, they hope to be able to pin down whether, in fact, the children of survivors also suffered damage to their DNA because of their parents' exposure. Or to put it in another way, to determine if there are heritable effects from radiation exposure. If you look at Wikipedia, it says 100 to 200,000 people have died from the bombings. Are we adding to that number? Are we counting deaths today? So the numbers that you see in the reference works are those who died of during the blasts or in the immediate aftermath. They died from wounds or from acute radiation exposure. The toll of people who have died later because of cancer that can be attributed to their atomic bomb exposure is in the thousands. And I could not find anyone who has done a real detailed study of what that number is. This was difficult to read for me, just to think about how many people died and how many people got sick from these bombings, and then to think about doing research with them. Is that something that you found difficult to report on? Was it tricky to address the fact that these people were injured by a bomb? It was tricky to find the right balance between letting these survivors present their story, and also then making the connection to how much all of us owe to them for their cooperation in these studies, which have resulted really in a safer world for us. It's a little bit complicated, but the recommended limitations that are now adopted around the world are based largely on the results of these long-term studies that the survivors have cooperated with. We all owe them a big debt of gratitude. Thank you so much, Dennis. Thank you, Sarah. Dennis Normile is a contributing correspondent based in Asia. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Winnie Lau about stopping plastic pollution around the globe. Time and again, I've interviewed scientists on the podcast about plastic pollution, when it shows up in unexpected places like glaciers, how it ends up in animals in the ocean, and how it travels around the globe. This week, Winnie Lau and colleagues write about what it would take to seriously fight the flow of plastics into the environment. Hi, Winnie. Hi, Sarah. 
What's your go-to figure for getting people to understand how big of a problem, how much plastic is ending up in the environment? There was one rough estimate by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who was one of the early nonprofit organizations working on this problem. They had a, a rough estimate that if we don't do anything about the problem, that in 2050, we could have more plastic in the ocean by weight than fish. Wow. That seems very serious to me. Mm -hmm, me too. From our study, we find that in the business as usual scenario, which is you know when we don't change what we're doing and continue on how we are using plastic, producing plastic, disposing plastic, we find that we could end up doubling and to tripling the amount of plastic that goes into the ocean each single year hmm. by 2040. And that over the next 20 years, the amount of plastic in the ocean could quadruple. Wow. Can you give us a ballpark figure for how much is entering the ocean these days? What we estimated was that there are about 11 million metric tons of plastic going into the ocean each year. As you mentioned, you did a business as usual analysis and modeled what would happen if we changed plastic practices and you wanted to compare different interventions with business as usual. So what are some of the things that you changed in your model? What did you tweak? What did you manipulate in order to understand what would be effective? What we really wanted to do was to take a look at the different strategies that have been proposed to see where any one particular strategy can take us. Take, for example, there have been proposals saying that we could recycle our way out of this problem. If we really keep plastic in society as a resource, we should be able to solve this problem. So one of the things we wanted to test was whether that's feasible. So what we were able to change in our model was, okay, what if we increase the rate of plastic that's collected for recycling, which then would increase the rate of plastic that's recycled and come back into the system. And what we found was that pushing the boundaries of what's feasible based on expert opinion is that just by focusing our efforts on recycling, we would stay at about status quo in 2040. Mm -hmm. Meaning in 2040, we would be about where we're at today in 2016. That's 11 million metric tons of plastic going into the ocean per year. So that's recycling. Did you also look at replacing? So using things other than plastic for whatever it's used for today? We modeled the elimination of plastic in places where it's possible and feasible today, as well as substituting plastic with alternative materials that could be scalable at the global level. Mm -hmm. So looking at paper, coated paper, and compostable materials. And we found something similar to the recycling strategy, which is that even if we push the boundaries on increasing the rates of elimination, increasing the rates of substitution, that we would be just slightly better than status quo today. There's a third variable that you also looked at. We modeled one other 
scenario, which is what if we safely disposed of all the plastic waste? And that scenario is also similar to the recycling and <laughs> reduce and substitute scenario. So, you know, it's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> but what we found was that to really bend the curve, to use an analogy that's very apt today, is that we really have to work across the entire system. And we model one scenario called the system change scenario, where we basically apply interventions across the entire system. And when we do that, we found that we could bring the plastic pollution rate down by almost 80% from business as usual projection in 2040. It doesn't mean that it will go down from today. It just means that it won't go up as much. That's a really good point you raised. We found that it would decrease from today. Oh, wow. And that we could decrease it by about 40% from where we are today. What I found surprising about this result, besides the fact that you can decrease from today, which is really good news, was that there was less cost to the series of interventions, this kind of system-wide approach, than to the business-as-usual approach. How, how does that work? Because there would be less plastic in the system change scenario through the reduce and substitute interventions. As a result, there's less plastic waste to manage, and so therefore the cost mm. for dealing with all the plastic waste that we're generating would go down. Was that difficult to figure out how people were handling waste on a global scale? I know that what happens to our garbage and how recycling works. Where I live in Indiana is different than in D.C. We divided up the globe into eight different archetypes based on country income level from World Bank data, as well as rural and urban populations. The reason we did this was, as you said, you know, different places manage waste differently. For example, in urban areas, you have a lot more services, you know, more government services. But in rural areas, that tends to be less of some of these services. Mm -hmm. And then you also have a difference between high income countries and middle and low income countries. The level of service is also different. In a lot of middle and low-income countries, waste is actually collected a lot by the informal sector called waste pickers. They're the ones who go collecting waste and sell anything of value. That's how they make a living. And so it's not a very formal waste management system. We took all of these different factors into account in how we came up with our numbers. Why is it bad to have plastic in the environment? Well, that (laughs) is a very, very good question. Uh, One, first and foremost, is that plastic doesn't really degrade in the environment. There are really no natural processes, no large-scale natural processes that can biodegrade plastic. Number two, it affects organisms The specific effects, the level of effects are still being understood by various scientists, but there have been documentation of impacts. We've seen the videos of seabirds, you know, having ingested plastic Mm -hmm. and having them fill in their stomachs and then they die of starvation. We've seen organisms get caught up in fishing nets, for example. We know there's harm. 
we're still trying to understand the full extent of it. Like, for example, microplastics. There are many studies now showing that there's ingestion of microplastics at all ecosystem levels by many species. People, they found evidence of people ingesting plastic and microplastic. We're still trying to understand what that impact is. Mm -hmm. So there was the Montreal Protocol, which was signed by many, many countries to reduce emissions that were depleting the ozone layer. We've had international cooperation on climate change to some extent. Do you see something global like that happening for plastic pollution? Obviously, our analysis shows that it's going to take a global effort to solve this plastic pollution problem. Individual countries are making efforts regionally. The EU is, has enacted quite a few European Union-wide policy and legislation. At the international level, there are some groups and countries trying to begin the process for an international treaty. There are different efforts coming along to help solve this problem. One challenge is that with international processes, it takes, it takes some time yeah. because you have to get all the different countries talking and in agreement to arrive at an international policy or an instrument. But I am hopeful. This problem is something that every country recognizes is a problem. There may not quite be agreement on the solutions right this moment, but I think we're many steps ahead in that there isn't really any government or any person really saying it's okay to have plastic pollution. So we've already kind of gotten past the hurdle of awareness raising. Oh, that's a really good point. How do you see this paper playing into the next steps for preventing plastic pollution? One of the things I'd like to highlight is that the system change scenario showed that with current knowledge, current technology, we can actually reduce plastic pollution by 80% from 2040 projections. So what that tells us is that we don't have to wait for some new yet unknown intervention to start solving the problem. We can start making that decision. We can start making that change today. And by working together across sectors, between governments and businesses, and making the choice to do it, we can solve this problem. Thank you so much, Winnie. Thank you so much, Sarah. Winnie Lau is the Senior Manager for Preventing Ocean Plastics at the Pew Charitable Trusts. You can find a link to her article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There, you're going to find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job.
Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.